Hello, everyone. My name is Deltom. That's right. My moniker is Deltom, and you are tuning in to the Social Work Journal. So this is actually my first official recorded podcast episode. I know I just introduced myself to Deltom, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. The purpose of this podcast is essentially, this is sort of this unconventional way for me to reach a multitude of people simultaneously and still carry out my work as a social worker, but just in an unconventional way. I decided to do this podcast actually about three years ago, and I've been mulling over kind of my intentions and my purpose. Essentially, what I'm going to do is really look into theory, evidence-based practice, and kind of relate them to certain experiences that I've had. You'll hear me say time and time again, I'm not an expert, but I am experienced because the purpose of this podcast is not for me to proselytize to you or tell you that I have all the answers. It's for us to explore the answers together and for me to share some of my experiences with you, which is why this is really a journal for me. To give you a little bit about my history, I have officially been a social worker for the past three years, but I've been working with children, adolescents, and very young, early development children. For the past, I want to say, eight and a half years, I started off as a one-to-one ABA therapist. And I'd say about five years in, I decided I wanted to go back to school and get my Master of Social Work degree. So I did do that. And in May 2018, I graduated from USC, Suzanne Dork Peck School of Social Work. I'm very proud to be an alumni of USC. Um, In undergrad, I studied public policy analysis, particularly I studied urban policy, and I minored in psychology. I think the reason why I was studying those two things, I didn't really have clarity on it back then. I didn't have like a clear path for my life, but I really just wanted to understand the world a little bit better. And I was always interested in psychology and the mind works and how people work. So that's a little bit of my history. As far as therapeutic services that I provide, I provide counseling through private practice. And I also serve as a school social worker. I've been working with children with disabilities and co-occurring mental health disorders Um, That's generally the population that I've served. I've also worked with trauma victims and I've worked with children in the foster care system. Maybe they've been adopted or maybe they're foster children. So working with a variety of presenting issues. I don't want to go down a long list of the presenting issues that I've worked with because I like to identify people as individuals and not necessarily assign an identity by areas that they're trying to improve in their life or whatever their areas of difficulty are. I don't think that's who you are. I don't think that's what defines you. But to give you some ideas, I've worked with children who have social anxiety disorder. I've also worked with children who have attachment disorder. I work with children who have obsessive compulsive disorder, oppositional defiance disorder. I especially work very closely with children and families who are dealing with, you know, non-compliance and sort of that parent-child relationship has been fractured and we're trying to repair that and we're trying to establish some boundaries and ways to communicate effectively. So overall, what I would describe myself as, as a school social worker and a family therapist.
that's the best way to summarize what I do. Now, since this is the first podcast, I'll go ahead and tell you my name is Delilah Adesanya. But for all intents and purposes, I want us to just refer to me as Delton for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm not attempting to enter into any kind of therapeutic relationship with anyone. That's not the purpose of this podcast. And I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know that legal jumbo schmumbo. So (laughs) instead of trying to give you some little legal script (laughs) to make sure we're not establishing a therapeutic relationship, you just call me Del Tom. I'm pretty sure you don't have a therapist that goes by a moniker. So if you call me Del Tom, we understand this is a very casual exchange. Also, because I am still working in the public sector, I certainly don't want any of the ideas and views and things that we discuss to be affiliated with any place of business where I work. So I know that sometimes I'm going to have coworkers that are listening to this podcast. These are my own personal experiences. My views are based on my own personal experiences. We are looking into evidence-based practice, evidence-informed practice, theories. We're going to look into, you know, even some pop psychology can be helpful. We're going to look into various sources, but I do want it to be clear that this podcast is not affiliated in any sort of way with any work or profession that I'm doing in the public sector. So once we make that separation, I should be okay to keep my job in case I say something that's a little controversial. (laughs) But moving on, for all intents and purposes, call me Del Tom. You hear me say, call me by my moniker. Don't call me by my government. But it was the first episode, so I went ahead and told you what my name is. Without further ado, I would like for us to go ahead and get into our topic of our first podcast. And what I want to talk to you all today about is attachment. This is a very ambitious topic. I don't think we can cover attachment in just one episode, but I do think that we can cover attachment. So the reason why I was inspired to talk about attachment, I'm actually the mother of a beautiful 18-month-old daughter. And, you know, there's so much literature out there about how to bond with your baby, what are the most appropriate ways to establish attachment while encouraging autonomy. I know during this stage, well, by now, hopefully you're done with it, but in the earlier stages up to this stage and maybe even later, later, some parents are trying to sleep train their children and you may be recommended by your pediatrician. I know I was to use the cry it out method. And I know that can be very controversial. Some parents are saying that's really cruel to use the cry out method. Some parents say, no, you got to do it or you'll never get your kids out of your bed. You'll never help establish autonomy. Well, we're going to look at some theorists and kind of what their ideas are about attachment. And then we'll circle back to some common ideas that we may or may not have about how to establish a bond and still encourage autonomy with our children. I'm not going to give any advice on that. I really think that everyone should just hear what the theorists have to say and come to your own conclusion. So the first theorist that I want to talk about is D.W. Winnicott, who was a pediatrician and psychoanalyst. He was a pioneer of object relations theory and a book that I actually just recently purchased, and I'm going to encourage you all to check it out too. It's actually called Babies and Their Mothers. And I'm going to read that book and we'll probably do another podcast to kind of discuss the book. 
But let's get into object relations theory. So he believes the first object is usually someone that is an internalized image of one's mother, that main caregiver. And that first object is called the transitional phenomena or the transitional object. So when a child is separated from their mother, they usually will cling to an object. So that object will be like a stuffed animal or a blanket. But that first object or that transitional object could also be something like the mother's breast. So one of the concepts that he kind of goes over is, um, so if the mother's breast is seen as nurturing because when the baby's hungry, the mother's breastfeeding that baby, then the mother's breast is good, right? But if the mother's breast is not meeting that baby's nutritional needs, where maybe the mother's kind of withholding the breast and that breast might be viewed by the baby as bad. And this is where he gets into sort of his theory of the good enough mother. So the good enough mother is essentially a mother who is entirely devoted to a baby and sees the baby's every needs. The mother in the beginning, she's willing to sacrifice a lot of her own needs to fulfill the needs of the baby. So, you know, when you have a baby and they're infants, what do we usually sacrifice? Our sleep. I can tell you, I did not get much sleep probably for the first six months of our daughter's life. And my daughter did not sleep through the night for the first time in a separate room until she was nine months. We were co-sleeping, but we'll get into that later. Okay. So basically he was saying that with being a good enough mother, the mother will initially meet all her baby's needs, but then slowly but surely allow the baby to experience small amounts of frustration and then step in when needed to comfort that baby. The mother is not perfect by any means, okay? She's there to step in when the child is having frustration and help soothe that child. And then she steps out again. So she's not perfect. She's just good enough. So that was D.W. Winnicott's theory about being a good enough mother. Now, one thing that he really stressed was sort of that theory. And this was kind of like the basis of his object relations theory. Without the mother, there's no such thing as the baby because the baby's feeling of self-worth is mirrored off of the mother, right? So the baby sees their identity within the mother. That's how they first establish their identity. So without the mother and the mirroring of that mother, the baby doesn't exist. And this kind of goes into his concept of illusion versus disillusionment, right? So in that illusionment, that's when the baby is first kind of establishing sort of this imagination, right? And they're first getting this contact with the world through their mother, having that lively experience. But they have not had that sense of reality. Once they get that experience of separation and that fetishism with that object, that transitional object, maybe it's the blanket that the baby uses to soothe themselves, to remind themselves of that imaginative state. Now the baby has a sense of reality. They can kind of understand that they're actually separate from their parent. And that is the disillusionment. Okay. So that's pretty much D.W. Winnicott's 
um, object relations theory. I mean, there's so much more. And like I said, experience, but I'm not an expert. But I just wanted to give you some of like the key points of D.W. Winnicott's theory. Now let's get into John Bowlby. Okay, so John Bowlby, if you don't know much about him, he was one of the pioneers also of attachment theory. And just so you know, before John Bowlby and before D.W. Winnicott, of course, there was Freud. Now we could talk about Freud probably in another episode, but right now let's just recircle back to John Bowlby. So he was inspired by his own childhood upbringing. He actually grew up in an upper middle income family in Britain. And at the time, it was very commonplace for people to raise their children with nannies. So he was raised by nannies and he was one of many children. I think he was like one of six children. And when he was seven years old, because the war was going on at the time, he was actually sent to a boarding school. So I think he was very affected by his childhood experiences. He never really felt like he experienced that bond with his mother. And he felt like he never secured this adaptive attachment with his mother. And he believes that that um, affected him in life. Now, here's a couple of things that Bowlby theorized in his attachment theory that's very crucial to know. He believed that the critical period for developing attachment was two and a half years old. If an attachment wasn't developed during that time, it may not happen at all. That was his theory, right? He also theorized that there was a sensitive period up to five years. So I think he later evolved to that. So he's saying, listen, you got to establish that attachment by two and a half years, but it's still critical to continue that attachment up to five years. He also theorized about maternal deprivation. And he believed that if a primary caregiver had like this continual disruption of attachment with themselves and their child. This could result in some long-term cognitive, social, and emotional difficulties for that infant later in their life. So remember I was talking about his early experiences and kind of some of his thoughts about his childhood and how that really fueled him to develop attachment theory. Now, in case you don't know, about Mary Ainsworth. She actually was a student of John Bowlby. And she and both John Bowlby believed that there needed to be this continuation of bonding with children and their mothers much beyond early on in the early stages so that children could establish secure attachment. So Mary Ainsworth, her and John Bowlby, they had this amazing experiment, which we're going to listen to in just a bit. And it was called a strange situation. So what you're going to see is she establishes through this experiment that the quality of attachment can be evaluated by observing the behavior between a mother and a child. So, you know, I don't want to tell you too much about the experiment. I'm just going to play it for you and then we'll chat about it in a bit. I'm just going to pull it up and let's listen. After conducting extensive observations of parents and children at home, a student of Bowlby's, Mary Ainsworth, devised such a procedure called the strange situation, which places the child under some stress. It has become the most widely used standardized way to assess the quality of a child's attachment to their caregiver. Here the researchers are recording how 14-month-old Lisa responds in this attractive but unfamiliar setting. How will she react to a stranger? 
what will happen when her mother leaves the room and when she returns. It's Lisa's behavior when her mother returns, what psychologists call the reunion, that they are particularly interested in. Most importantly is to look for the type of balance that a child strikes between an attachment need and, on the other hand, to explore the play material. Once Lisa has settled down to play, a stranger enters the room and sits in the chair reading a magazine. After a couple of minutes, the stranger attempts to interact with Lisa. Soon after, Lisbeth gets a cue to leave the room. A stranger tries to comfort Lisa, but in vain. Lisbeth comes back into the room and the camera records how Lisa reacts. Now the first part of the procedure is over and Lisbeth settles Lisa down again. The stranger leaves them alone together. Soon after, Lisbeth goes too. Lisa is on her own. Her distress is plain to see. Once again, the efforts of the stranger to console Lisa are to no avail. But Lisbeth manages to calm her almost at once, and shortly afterwards the observation ends. Lisa showed outward signs of what's called secure attachment. Okay, so I think that was very interesting, the, the whole experiment and the observation. But essentially what happened is the mother's in a room with a child, the child's playing with toys, a stranger enters, interacts with the mother, then the mother leaves. And I may not be saying this in the exact order. The stranger tries to console the baby because obviously when the mother leaves, the baby becomes distressed. Once the mother re-enters the room and the stranger leaves, the mother's able to console the child. And when there is a second round of this same sort of interaction, I think maybe this the second round, the stranger didn't interact with the mom. It was simply the mom leaving and the stranger entering and trying to reconsole the child. The stranger was not able to do that with the first round or the second round of observations. But the mother was able to soothe the child. And the child was soothed as soon as the mother entered the room and comforted them, the child was able to settle down rather quickly. So this gets us into the different attachment styles, because as we learned from this observation, that child was considered to have secure attachment. So what is secure attachment? Before I tell you about these different attachment styles, I want you to know the text that I'm getting this from. It's actually called Treating Attachment Disorders, the second edition from Theory to Therapy. It was written by Carl Heinz Britz. So let's go ahead and get into the different attachment styles. So secure attachment. When the mother leaves, the child experiences separation anxiety. They become distressed. They start crying. But once the mother returns, the child is happy to see the mother and the child calms down relatively quickly is soothable and is able to return to their previous activity once they've calmed down. Now, avoiding attachment, avoidant attachment. I did not say that clearly the first time. There's no clear attachment behavior. So if the mother leaves, you won't see the child necessarily in distress. This is why children with avoidant attachment, sometimes they can be seen as highly independent, self-sufficient. But in actuality, what's going on there, it is there is somewhat of a curiosity at first when the mother leaves, but for whatever reason, because that attachment was not established appropriately, it's almost like the child is trying to, for lack of better words, put up a front like they don't care that their mother has left, but they, they do care. There is some curiosity there. After the mother returns, 
they probably would react by avoiding the mother, not allowing the mother to take them into their arms. They might kind of shimmy out. There's no intense physical contact between that child and their mother. Now, something that I think is important to understand is that people with that avoidant attachment, sometimes they have, well, not sometimes, they do have high stress levels as adults. And also they can, like Bowlby suggested, have some cognitive impairment and have some social emotional dysfunction because they never really established a bond with that initial caregiver. This is what the theories are saying. Don't take my word for it. So again, check the book out, Treatment Attachment Disorders, second edition from theory to therapy. Now we'll talk about ambivalent attachment. Just to sum it up in one word, this child is inconsolable. So it usually takes them longer to achieve that emotional equilibrium to calm down. So let's say the mother leaves, the mother comes back, they console the child or at least attempt to, that child might be crying, they might be very distraught. When their mothers are picking them up, the children express this desire for physical contact and closeness, but they start behaving a little aggressively towards their, their mother. So they might start kicking her, hitting her, pushing her, turning away. They're inconsolable. They do want that closeness. They just don't know how to ask for it and they don't know how to receive it. And then there's the insecure, disorganized attachment pattern. There's a few different subcategories that go under this category, but essentially um, it's very kind of hard to classify because there's sort of this disorganized pattern. So maybe a child who's insecure, disorganized in their attachment, they might run towards their mother, they might freeze, they might turn around and run the other way. So you're kind of seeing this push and pull of wanting that closeness, not knowing how to receive it. Like we said, there's when we're talking about avoidant, avoidance and ambivalent attachment, what you'll see as subcategories, a couple of them are insecure avoidant and insecure ambivalent. So remember, avoidant, they want it. They don't really know. They're not really clear about wanting it. They seem like they're pretty independent and self-sufficient. Ambivalent, they want it. They don't know how to receive it. So that's when you see like, this distress sort of behavior, but then they're starting to hit and kick their mom. So it's like you're almost giving them mixed signals. So that's how I look at this disorganized attachment. Now, I think that insecure attachment, especially insecure ambivalent attachment is a whole nother podcast. We'll definitely get into it. But just to kind of give you an idea specifically what insecure ambivalent attachment looks like, this is someone who probably had a caregiver who was really unpredictable. They would punish or scold the kid. And then maybe another moment, they would be very kind to that child and very loving. So what you tend to see in adults, according to the theory, the different types of attachment is these adults may try to control their peers. They're very nervous about what other people think about them. They may engage in a lot of negative self-talk thinking, oh, people don't like me or, you know, I never fit in. They, they engage in a lot of that negative self-talk. And they're always trying to change the decisions of others or negotiate in any type of way that they can. It's very odd. Um, 
this person might be someone who seeks attention, but dislikes and hates and criticism or feedback. In extreme cases, they can be very abusive, even sexually abusive. And it's all about power and control. And they really want to try to control a caregiver or remember when you get from that illusionment to that disillusionment, okay, relating it to reality, anyone who presents themselves as sort of a caregiver image of, of what their illusionment is, right? They will try to control that person or take charge of that person. That's a whole nother podcast. We're definitely going to cover that, but I just want to get into a little bit. So lastly, but not least, I think it is important for us to talk about and I hope that I put this on. Okay, Margaret Mahler. So Margaret Mahler, specifically what I want to talk about is her separation individuation phase. I think this is very important to highlight. This usually takes place, or I should say, the arrival of this phase is usually like between the infant and the mother, where individuation refers to the development of the infant's ego. And then there's like this self identity and cognitive abilities, it starts to develop. So she has like many sort of sub phases under this individuation separation phase. So there's like hatching, which is the first few months, the child really doesn't have any idea of differentiating between themselves and their mother, right? And then between nine and 16 months, that's when the infant is starting to crawl, they're walking freely, they're exploring more, they're becoming more distanced from their mom, right? And then there's the reproachment subphase, and that's when the infant becomes close to the mother. They realize that their physical mobility and their psychic separateness from their mother, they can tell the difference between the two. So they're starting to understand and be able to differentiate themselves from their mom. They still want to keep their mom in sight, but they want to explore their world. Why do I think this reproachment phase is so important? Because we're talking about attachment, how to establish secure attachment and how to encourage independence while doing so. So one thing that I want to say to kind of relate it to my own individual independent experiences with my 18-month-old daughter is if I could go back in the hands of time, I know that Initially, when my daughter came home from the hospital, she was born prematurely. So there was no doubt in our minds that she was going to co-sleep with us for a period of time because she was premature and we knew that she might have some needs and taking her home from the hospital. We really didn't know what to expect. She was really small. She was only four pounds. So we really wanted to keep a close eye on her. Even with my daughter being premature, knowing what I know now, I probably wouldn't have let her sleep in our room for more than six months because I don't think it was even conducive to her sleep. I think she became a little irritated kind of hearing some of our sounds from our sleeping. I think that her sleeping was a little interrupted. I think we probably could have gotten her to sleep through the night a little bit sooner had she had her own room. So although my goal with her was for her to co-sleep with us for 12 months, and I did successfully establish that. <laughs> Definitely, if I have another baby, I would really like for them to have their own room and sleep in their own room at the latest by six months. I think it's good to start 
introducing some of that separation. Another kind of unique phenomena that we're dealing with is COVID. So because of COVID, everything got shut down. I know initially around March 2020, that's when a lot of jobs, my job uh, particularly, we decided not to go back in person. We were trying to figure out how we were going to deliver services to students while being remote. My husband was still on paternity leave at the time because he decided to take one month when our daughter was first home from the hospital so he could stay with me and kind of help me out those first four weeks. And then he went back to work. And then after my maternity leave was over, he was on paternity leave. So in actuality, my daughter was very fortunate because for the first year of her life, she was at home with her parents constantly. She didn't really have much interaction with people on the outside. You know, I think she had some interaction with children. I know I had a coworker and we had like a play date when the girls were like three months. Maybe it was four months. I'm thinking it was around three months. We had a neighbor who had a toddler age daughter and my daughter had had some interactions with her. And she was always curious about people and she was always curious about pets like dogs and stuff like that. She had a curiosity very early on. However, I would say that my daughter probably had much higher separation anxiety than most children because she'd never been to a daycare and she'd never really been around anyone else besides her parents. So when we had company, she was afraid to go near any adults that weren't us. I mean, it would take her quite some time to get used to them or warm up. So when my daughter, she was just she wasn't quite a year yet. Maybe she was around like 10 months. We had went to like the summer barbecue at a friend's house. And she probably was there for a good two hours before she let my friend hold her. And this is somebody that she's seen before, but she just still had to warm up to this person. But surprisingly, that's probably the closest that she came to allowing someone outside of her caregiver, which is myself or my husband, get close to her. Um, She started daycare when she was 15 months. The first week was rough. I should preface this before I go on that my daughter goes to daycare part time. She only goes two days a week. So in To this day, she's still ongoing two days a week and she's 18 months, but she started daycare when she was 15 months. That first week was rough. And I heard that it's rough for all kids, but I would say that my daughter has been, you know, she has a very reserved personality. She's really shy. I don't think she really got used to her teachers until recently, maybe a couple of weeks ago is when she started kind of letting her teachers hold her more and you we're seeing her blossom and she's interacting with other kids and she's playing with other kids. I think I have seen her initiate a couple of times when I've gone to pick her up after school. So one thing that I try to do on the days that she's in school is I try not to pick her up too early. I try to pick her up later because after a certain hour, The kids aren't doing necessarily structured activities that go in the playroom. And I think that's a great opportunity for her to play and engage and initiate. So I would say that her being at home with us primarily has impacted, you know, some of, I wouldn't say social skills is too early to state that, but just impacted her ability to establish 
those rapports with people outside of her caregivers. Yes, she has an excellent bond with my my husband and I, but I do think that her separation anxiety is probably a little bit higher than her peers because of the situation with COVID-19 right now, her staying at home with us solely for so long. And I'm glad that we're just slowly introducing her to daycare. She's only going a couple of days a week. In the near future, we'd like for her to start going probably every day. Because another thing that has been sort of a difficulty for us, I know she doesn't really like it when we're talking on the phone for prolonged periods of time. So even me right now recording this podcast, I kind of lucked out that she's taking her nap. But we, we have seen a lot of great improvements as we encourage the autonomy. So what I was talking about earlier with the cried out method, that was recommended to us by our pediatrician. And we actually did decide to do the cry out method. We've tried to slowly transition her out of our room. And I think we saw some temporary success with that, but we've allowed her to just go ahead and cry it out, especially now that she's older and you know, now she goes to bed pretty easily. We don't have to do like this whole special routine, you know, outside of what's in the norm, which is giving her a bath, um, brushing her teeth. You know, we give her after her bath, we give her milk first. Right. And she only drinks out of her 360 cup. No more sippy cups, transitional cups. We brush her teeth. We bring her blanket. So that's kind of her trans, that's not kind of, it is her transitional object, right? So she snuggles with that blanket. We usually put that blanket between ourselves and her and she'll kind of lay her head on our shoulder and she'll nod off for a few minutes and then we put her down in the bed. Sometimes she just rolls over and goes to sleep. Sometimes she'll cry. I would say on average now, probably up to 10, maybe on the longer side, 15 minutes. And then she'll go to sleep. But for the most part, these days, she pretty much just rests on our shoulder for about a few minutes. And then she'll kind of squirm like, okay, I'm ready to get in my bed now. I remember when my daughter caught her first cold. We're like, maybe we'll let her sleep with us since she's not feeling well. You know something? She did not want to sleep with us. So it's amazing how kids are adaptable and how they change. And I think that they're more adaptable than us adults and they can change more rapidly than us adults. So I do think that W.D. Winnicott had some great ideas about establishing that bond and just being a good enough parent, not being perfect, and then slowly transitioning that child into more autonomy. And I think that's what Bowlby was saying as well. He was saying, hey, just establish the attachment by two and a half. There's still sort of this crucial period up to five, but the earlier stage is where it's most important to meet all their needs. And then as Winnicott expressed, you can kind of allow them to deal with some frustrations. And I think that's what we saw also, or we heard also in the Mary Ainsworth, John Bowlby experiment, a strange situation where there were periods where the mother was leaving the child, the child was in distress. They were using these appropriate behaviors to get their needs met, which was crying out and following the mother trying to get that contact back. But once they got what they needed and they were, you know, soothed, then the baby just went on with what they were doing before, which was playing, which is great. So these are all great theories. I think that really help us establish in our own minds, 
what we perceive as ideal ways to secure attachment and allow our kids to be independent because we want them to grow up and be successful and cope with life on their own. So thank you for tuning in to the Social Work Journal with your host, myself, Del Tom. Oh yeah, and by the way, when I was talking about separation individuation by Margaret Mahler, I want you to know it's called the individuation stage. The separation individuation stage is what I was specifically referring to. And the specific stage that you should look into is the rapprochement 15 to 24 months. I think that's where you can kind of see sort of like this um, transition between the closeness and then later the autonomy for a child. Well, thanks for tuning in. Until next time, take care and hopefully I'll get to talk to you again soon. Bye.